Hey there, church. I want to welcome everybody across the network. Greetings to our families at Bentendorf, all of you here at Rock Island, the men at Kiwani, as well as those of you tuning in online. Welcome as we start a journey into a particular teaching method of Jesus called parables. It comes from the reality that there are sometimes just truth so deep or hope so profound that we need some way to articulate it, to share it. And for Jesus, that was parables. He used parables to communicate deep truth about himself, about God, about the kingdom of God. And he used parables throughout his ministry. And we're going to look specifically at a handful of parables all out of the gospel of Luke in this journey. But before we get to that, I just want to pause and acknowledge that we as a church, we're one church in multiple locations. We have a location here in Rock Island, Bettendorf, two locations in Moline, multiple expressions across the Quad Cities. But we also have the privilege of partnering with the men at the Kwani Life Skills Reentry Center. And I absolutely love those guys. I love their heart for God. It's a pleasure and privilege to worship with them and chase the things of God. And as we begin this process, as we step through the parables, we had an, have an extra blessing from our brothers in Kwani because they have painted artwork from each of the parables that we'll be looking at that'll help us make this journey all the more special. You saw already the first image out of our first parable that we'll look at today. And through the rest of the journey, we'll see other images that our brothers have painted. And I just want to say thanks to our brothers out at Kiwani. We love you. Grateful for you. Thanks for blessing us with this gift of your talents as we lean deep into what is going to be a pretty impactful journey looking at the parables of Jesus. Yeah, you can, you can thank them for that. So as, as we step into understanding the parables, we really want to start with a basic definition. And the most clear definition for parables is that it is a simple story with a spiritual truth. A simple story with a spiritual truth. Now, some people say they are earthly stories with a heavenly truth. It really doesn't matter what wordsmithing you do. The reality is they take big and vast concepts, deep truth, and deliver it in simple ways, in snippets that we can receive. They, they, take, they take the physical and the spiritual world, blend them together, and offer deep truth in bite-sized realities. They create a space for us to encounter truth. Simple stories with a spiritual truth. And whether these stories are short or long, whether they're very clear in what they're saying or kind of veiled, whether they're explained or not explained, every single one of the parables is important. Jesus told them with a point, with a reason. Simple stories with spiritual truth. And, and, and they create this space where the physical world bears witness to the spiritual world. They're impactful. And as we begin this process, I want you to know and understand that the parables help us. They help us because on one hand, the grand nature of God is incomprehensible. And we can struggle at times to wrap our mind around an all-powerful, all-knowing God who loves and knows us. But the parables actually bring his majesty and glory and, and lay it beside daily stories out of real life. That's the power of the parables. They help us understand deep truth. Simple stories that point to spiritual truth. One of the realities that help us understand a parable and what it is is just looking at the word itself. Because the word the, comes from a Greek word, parabolo. 
And parabolo simply means that which is thrown alongside. Parabolo is actually two words, a preposition and a verb, para and balo. It speaks to alongside of and to throw or to cast. So a parable is something which is thrown alongside of. It creates this space where one thing is thrown alongside of another to help us understand. It's a juxtaposition. And parables help us understand and relate to God by taking deep truth and laying it alongside simple realities so that you and I can lean in and totally understand. That's what the parables do. And Jesus told a lot of them. Much of his ministry and teaching was marked by parables. In fact, about a third of all of the recorded teachings of Jesus are in the form of parables. And in fact, specifically, we find the parables in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are no parables in John, partly because John was written to the Greeks and not the Jews. Matthew, Mark, and Luke contain parables. In fact, in Matthew, there are 23 parables. In Mark, which is written by John Mark, who we talked about last week as we wrapped up Not So Average Joes, there are eight parables. But when it comes to the Gospel of Luke, it has the most. There are 24 parables in the Gospel of Luke, and of the 24, 18 of them are unique to Luke. They're not told anywhere else. Some parables are told across the Gospels, but there are 18 out of the 24 in Luke that are just in Luke. And every time Jesus talked about and and used a parable, he used lots of different things to communicate about the kingdom of God, about God, and about Jesus himself. He used things like agriculture. He used uh, social dynamics, political realities. He even used money. And some of the times when he told a parable, it was very clear, just straight up understandable. And then other times it felt kind of veiled. Almost like uh, there had to be more to it. But even then in those spaces, he often created an opportunity for his disciples to have a closer look. And that, in a way, is exactly what this series is about. Creating an opportunity for you and I to take a closer look at the truth placed within the parables that Jesus told. And even today, as we start off this journey, we're going to lay a foundation that will take us through the rest of the series. So if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to grab it. Turn to the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 8 is where I want to invite you to to land because we're going to find a space here where Jesus talks about why he used parables. And depending on where we start in looking at a parable, sometimes we can look at it and go, okay, Jesus told this to bring clarity and understanding. And then we can look at another space and see a parable we look and see, it seems like Jesus told that to limit understanding. And and it's not quite the case because, as I already said, Jesus repeatedly created space for his disciples to lean in and have that closer look. And in this particular spot in Luke chapter 8 is one of those interactions. So this is Luke chapter 8 starting with verse 9. His disciples asked him what this parable meant. They're basically saying, why would you tell the story? And the particular story he's talking about, or they're talking about, is the parable of the sower. So right before this, he told the parable of the sower. Here's his response, verse 10. You are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of God, but I use parables to teach others so that the scriptures might be fulfilled. When they look, they won't really see. When they hear, they won't understand. Now those last two lines, in those lines, Jesus is quoting out of Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9. And and he's He's saying to his disciples, look, you have been given an understanding. You have been given insight into the kingdom of God. You get how it works. But not everybody does. There are others who need stories. Yet, even when I tell stories, not everybody will understand. Even when I explain it, they will not embrace it. Even though I offer the opportunity, they won't be able to gather, wrap their head around it and, and understand the truth. I will still tell the stories, but not everybody will understand. 
And Jesus did. He told the parables because he ultimately wanted people to have the truth that he was offering. He, he never used parables to hide. He used parables to help. He used parables to help us lean into a deeper understanding. In fact, there's a really great quote from a guy named G. Campbell Morgan. He's a British author, theologian, and pastor. He said this. He said, Jesus used the parabolic method. That's Jesus told parables. Not in order to blind them, but in order to make them look again. Not in order to prevent them coming to forgiveness, but in order to lure them toward a new attention. Jesus never told parables to hide truth but to position us to understand truth, to embrace truth, and, and ultimately to embrace him as truth because he himself was, is the way, the truth, and the life. He told parables to help us understand. So these simple stories with a spiritual truth provide for us a framework of understanding. Parables provide a framework for understanding. They give a context for clarity. They give us an insight into a deeper reality. They, they allow us a space to engage deep and profound truth in a way that makes sense to us. They don't convey all things. They give clear glimpses of things out of these simple stories with spiritual truths. They provide a framework of, of understanding, but they also provide a framework for choosing. See, every time Jesus told a parable, he used a, a concept of truth about God, about the kingdom of God, and then he put it in the context of the world to invite us as people to understand a point and make a decision. Every time he told a parable, there is a deep truth, a spiritual truth, a reality he put in the context of the world so that you and I would understand the truth and choose. Every time. In fact, when he taught, he often positioned people to choose. The parables are no exception. So as we begin the journey, I want to invite you to take a posture to be willing to hear whatever the Lord wants to speak to you and, and, and at you about him and his kingdom through the scriptures. Be willing to receive it. Be willing to sit in a posture to hear the truth and then choose. And I invite you to consider using a process. If you don't have a way by which you look at scripture and try to understand it, to just use three simple steps. Always start by praying and asking God to lead, but then just walk through a process of observe, interpret, and apply. It's very simple. It's where you just ask, what does it say? Second is, what does it mean? And third is, how now, do we, how now do, we, do we live as a result? Observe, interpret, apply. This is almost as simple and powerful as the stories we're going to be looking at in the parables. And I encourage you, if you don't have a process by which you look at Scripture and try to move yourself to the choice, the opportunity that Jesus is trying to position us for, that you consider using this along the way in our journey. Now, we're already in Luke. We're in Luke chapter 8. But we're going to go to Luke chapter 18 to get to our first parable. So if you've got a Bible, I invite you to go ahead and start turning over to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to settle into a parable we find there. There's actually more than one. There, there's a parable at the very beginning of that chapter about the persistent widow. And it, it's a parable that Jesus told to encourage his disciples to keep on praying and never give up. And we're going to look at that parable in a few weeks. But right after that, we encounter another parable. And it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee and the tax collector. Now, although this story involves two people who go to the temple to pray, I'm going to tell you, it is not about prayer. The previous parable is about prayer. This, this parable is not about prayer. It's about posture. It's about perspective and approach. It's about our focus and our orientation in our connection and relationship with God. 
So as we lean into this, understand, although it speaks about prayer, it is first and foremost not about prayer. It's about our posture and our approach. So let's go ahead and jump on into this. And we're going to start here at verse 9 in Luke 18. When then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Now, he's declaring the audience. He is talking to people who had a misperception about themselves and about other people. That's who he's talking to. Verse 10, here it is. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. So we have a religious leader and a government official. Verse 11, the Pharisee stood by himself and prayed to this prayer. I thank you, God, that I am not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I am certainly not like that tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of my income. So in these brief few words, this man is declaring his goodness and how really good he is. He's like, I'm good, but I'm also really good in that I give and I fast and I do it consistently out of the most specific nature of the second and the fifth day of the week because that's when we think Moses went up to Sinai and got the lost. He went up on the fifth day of the week, came back on the second, so we fast on those two days. He's saying, I'm good and I'm really good. In contrast to that, verse 13, but the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow. Now the verb here actually communicates repetition, saying he, he repeatedly beat his chest, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. Two totally different moments, two men, going to pray, but in the end, only one actually has a healthy, right conversation with God. There's two prayers, one, one awkward, one eloquent, but only one has a conversation with God that is healthy and right. See, the Pharisee, when he went up to the temple to pray, he, he didn't actually talk with God. He talked about himself to himself. He, he elevated himself in that dynamic. He stood and prayed by himself and in, in a very short prayer, he actually uses the word I five times. In his prayer, he was not elevating God, he was elevating himself. In complete contrast, the tax collector approached God in humility, in an honest conversation, and he talked to God in light of who he was in light of God, in front of God. In light of who God was, he spoke out of his own humility and his own position before God. It was an honest conversation. He's simply saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. He involved body, soul, and spirit in that moment. The difference between the two is that the Pharisee, his focus as far as a who and a what and a why was his focus was on himself. And his what was to receive praise and his why was for his performance. He focused on himself to receive praise based on how well he had done. In contrast, the tax collector's focus was on God. That was his what, or his who. His what was the fact that he needed mercy, and his why was his sin. God, I need mercy because I'm a sinner. Two radically different moments of prayer. And when the tax collector says, be merciful to me, He's, there's a Greek word here, helaskamai, which is actually also translated as reconciling. It's translated as atoning sacrifice. It's only used one other time in Scripture. It's in Hebrews chapter 2, where it's translated as propitiation or atoning sacrifice, which are really fancy words for the process of being made right before God. 
where our sin is removed and we're reconciled and made right to him. So the fullest sense of what the tax collector was praying was God be merciful to me through your atoning sacrifice because I am a sinner. Two prayers, one eloquent and one awkward, but only one of them pleased God. Why is that? I mean, besides the fact that we often define eloquent and awkward differently than God, it also comes down to these guys and what they were actually doing. In fact, hang with me for a moment. I just want to do a bit of a comparison and contrasting between these two individuals because we have the Pharisee and we have a tax collector. The Pharisee was someone who was respected. He was a religious leader of prowess. We know from Scripture that the tax collector was despised. Respected and despised. I think that both of them were kind of feared by the people. Uh, this one because of his religious authority and prowess. This one because of his government authority. Both feared in the context of community. Yet they both demonstrated and had a faith. They had a belief in God. They, they uh, had the same tradition. And they went up to the temple to pray. But this is where it gets different. This is where it diverges because the Pharisee focused his prayer on himself. He was all about him. I, five different times. The tax collector focused on God, asking for mercy of God. The, the Pharisee focused on his works, what he had done, what he had accomplished, how good he was performing. Where on the flip side, the, the tax collector focused on grace. He was asking for mercy. The Pharisee chose to compare. He chose to look at the other people around him and compare. He specifically pointed out the tax collector who, who chose instead to confess. The Pharisee, he chose a position of pride. The tax collector chose a position of humility. And in the end, the Pharisee chose to exalt himself while the tax collector chose to humble himself. Two guys, two prayers, heading to the same place to pray. Very different outcomes. They have some things that are the same. They have some things that are different. Both of them are sinners. Both. Yet the outcome of this moment is dramatically different. See, the, the Pharisee will see what ends up being judged. He will receive judgment and the tax collector will receive mercy. What's the difference? It's because of this space right here. It's the space between uh, of these two differences of posture and approach. It was posture and approach that changed the dynamic. A posture of selfishness versus a focus on God. A posture of pride versus humility. A posture of, of comparison versus confession. Posture and approach changed the dynamic altogether and made the outcome different. And, and quite honestly, the reality is that our posture matters, our focus matters, our, our orientation matters, our heart, our, our mind, everything we come before the Lord and our, our attitude and our posture and approach, it matters, posture matters. Because ultimately, our posture determines our access. Our posture determines what happens as we approach. Our posture determines our access. And, and we, may, we may think, oh, wait a second, I get that to a degree, but why is that? See, God gives us the ability to come before him in prayer. We can all talk to him in prayer. He, he loves us enough to give us a space to come towards him. But how we come to him and who we come to him through actually matters. And our posture determines our access. This, this parable is not about prayer, primarily. It is about posture. 
And our posture is what determines our access. Our posture is what determines his response. We can pray. We can talk to God. But our posture determines how he responds to us. And although we can come to him, we actually need help to be in relationship with God. That's why out of love, God sent Jesus to live and to die, to pay a sin debt you and I couldn't pay. Because he died, our sin, our sin debt can be covered. He can be Savior. And because he conquered sin and death, he can be Lord. So because he can be Savior and he can be Lord, he's the means by which we can have full access. But our posture in our approach determines our access. It defines it. We all need to choose Jesus in order to experience the fullness of God. If we don't, we can't quite get there. But when we do, we can experience him. But our posture is a key component. When we approach in the right posture, we can be justified, made right. That's actually what happens with this tax collector. With the right focus, a right orientation, a right heart, he's able to be made right before God. Take a look at this. This is verse 14 in chapter 18. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. I want to point something out here. Jesus calls the tax collector a sinner and the Pharisee a Pharisee. That's not derogatory. He calls him a sinner. Even though they're both sinners, he calls the tax collector a sinner because he's honoring and recognizing the honest identity and title of being the sinner, that that he is a sinner. It's a valued posture. He's honoring that honesty of the tax collector. It's not derogatory. And here's what he goes on to say. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. There are two prayers, one eloquent, one awkward, but only one pleases God. The Pharisee's prayer and approach was all about his deeds and his own power, whereas the tax collector approached in humility, seeking God's mercy and his compassion, because he knew he was a sinner. That made all the difference. But there's something else within this that when we lean into James, we begin to get a better picture of this. Because James, the little brother of Jesus, says something that just blows this whole thing apart. He says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the who? The humble. Listen, he's actually quoting from Proverbs. But it's striking for me that James, the little brother of Jesus, would actually highlight this, point this out. It gives it a little bit deeper meaning for me. That God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. Here's how this starts to play out then. When we think about how this dynamic worked, what James just declared, what we can read in Proverbs, is that God opposes the proud, but he gives favor to the humble. He opposes the proud, he gives favor to the humble. People who focus on self, who focus on comparison, who choose pride, who choose to exalt themselves, there's opposition from God. But those who choose humility and confession, those who choose a posture of seeking grace and mercy, they find favor. But here's the deal. It's hard for us not to hang out over here. It's hard for us to to stay over on this side of the equation. We do compare. We we are self-focused. But God calls us to live over here, and this is where he gives favor. Yet we can struggle with that. In fact, uh, not long ago, Beth and I went to an international conference. It was a gathering within our denomination of all the leaders uh, around the world. And so it was a big gathering in a big conference center. And I actually had some role in leading some breakout sessions, kind of some platform presence. And so I I wasn't really fully anonymous in that space. And after a few days, Beth and I just needed time to get away. And so we decided to head out and go to dinner somewhere. But I needed to head back up to the hotel room and grab the car keys so that we could head out. And so she decided to stay in the lobby. 
And I rode up the elevator, went to the room, grabbed the keys, and I came back and called the elevator. And for all of you or any of you who have ever been on an elevator, you know how weird that space can be. I mean, you're cramming people who don't really know each other into a small space within each other's personal space. You're trying to navigate the eye contact, the conversation. You have the casual conversation, but you don't want to be the creepy guy who's listening to other conversations. You're just like, do I look? Do I not look? Hi. Do we have a real conversation? I kind of always want to lead a group activity in the elevator. I just have like this, this fun exercise. Hey, everybody, let's just try this. But nobody really wants to do that because they're all just kind of navigating the awkwardness of being in everybody's personal space, but not really having a personal dynamic of real conversation. So anyway, I got on the elevator. There's a few people on there. We started to head down, got a few more people on the elevator, and I'm in that space trying to read it. I'm like, is this a space to talk? Is this a space to leave everybody alone? And, and I think some people recognize me from some of my platform role. And in the end, I just decided to pull out my phone and just do a little bit of scrolling, right? You just go into your phone, don't have to worry about anything else within the elevator. Well, finally, the elevator stopped, it dings, the door opens. One guy gets off. And Normally, I wait for everybody to get off an elevator, but I felt like they were out of respect wanting me to go first. So I just kind of stepped off and, and immediately realized I was not in the lobby. <laughs> I was on some other floor. And right away, found myself in a dilemma. Either I turn around and acknowledge my mistake and look foolish, or I can continue down the hall as if I meant to do it. It's one of two options. And it's really not that big of a deal to turn around and say, oops, I made a mistake. But in that space, in that moment, I felt the weight of that. I, here I am, a leader at this event. I'm thinking they're going to think, how in the world should we listen to that guy? He doesn't even know how to ride an elevator properly. <laughs> so in a split-second decision, you know what I decided to do? I decided to walk down the hallway like, hallway like I meant to do it. Don't judge me, people. Come on now. <laughs> listen. So, but it was all fine. I'm saving all of us from the awkward re-entry into the elevator. And I had a plan. Once the elevator door shut, I just push and call another elevator because it's a huge conference center. There's like six elevators in this hallway. And I hop on and get down to the, down to the lobby right after that. No big deal. So that's what I did. Ele elevator door shut, waited a second, pushed the button, and waited for the light and the ding of the next elevator to open. And you know what happened? <laughs> that elevator opened. The same one I just got off with the same people looking at me, blankly just blinking. And this is a really crazy, awkward moment. And, and immediately I assessed. I had three options. Three options. First, I could just run. I could just run away. Eh. But second option was I could actually step onto the elevator, acknowledge my mistake, eat humble pie, and have the most awkward elevator ride from the second floor, which is where we were at this point, down to the elevator, or down to the lobby. The third option was I could kind of figure out some way to get out of this. So you know what I did? I decided to fake it till I could make it. And I looked right at him, and I said, are you going up or going down? <laughs> the same people I got off the elevator before we were going down. And they kind of looked at me and said, we're going down. I said, oh, that's okay. And then waited for the door to close. <laughs> Awkward, man. It was bad. But my pride wouldn't let me get back on the elevator. So here's the deal. But it was all fine, because again, I'm saving that whole awkward dynamic down to the floor and the conversation, and I had a plan. I would just head down the hall, get to the stairwell, go down two, two flights of stairs into the lobby, meet up with Beth, good to go. Everything was fine, totally fine, until I got to the lobby. First, two things. First, I had to explain to Beth what took so long. She just rolled her eyes at me and laughed at me. Second, way more awkward, making eye contact with the same group I had just seen on the elevator less than three minutes ago on the second floor. Oh, well, they knew. We all knew. 
awkward. Like I said, my pride wouldn't let me get back on the elevator. Man, I couldn't just humbly step back on. That my pride had a ripple. It had a ripple for the people on the elevator. had a ripple for Beth. It had a ripple for me. And pride always has a ripple. Always. And when it comes to the things of God, God opposes pride. But he gives favor to the humble. We may think that, look, if I do the right things, God's going to respond. If I don't do it quite right, he just won't respond. That may be true in some arenas. It is not true when it comes to pride and humility. God always responds to pride and humility. All the time. He is never neutral. He is never inactive around it. He always responds to pride and humility. He responds with opposition to one and favor with the other. And what Jesus says is that those who exalt themselves will be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. He flips it all on its head. My friends, we can think that if we do things right, God will respond, but if we don't quite do things right, he'll just stay neutral. It may be in certain circumstances, but when it comes to this and this, pride and humility, he always responds. In fact, God responds to pride and humility at the same speed. God responds to pride and humility at the same speed. He responds to arrogance and repentance at the same rate, the same immediacy. He is never neutral. He is never inactive around pride and humility. He's never delayed. It is always immediate. And even though it's the same speed of response, the response is dramatically different. Opposition and favor. This thing is so important to God to understand that he opposes the proud and gives favor to the humble, that he ensures that it's included in Scripture three times. That statement, that he opposes the proud and gives favor to the humble, three times. It's in Proverbs first, then it's James, and then it's first Peter. Peter says it, James says it. it this is an important concept that God is never neutral around, around pride and humility. He always responds to pride and humility at the same speed, but they're two totally different responses. And for the tax collector in this equation, he is made right before God. He, he, it's immediate when that happens. He, as he humbly comes before God seeking grace and mercy, he is made right. He is justified before God, reconciled to him. He, he didn't have to earn it. He didn't have to wait in a probationary period. He's just given it. He can receive it. And the same can be true for you and I. No matter where we've been or what we've done, we can be made right before God when we come before him in the right posture and approach in humility, in confession, with a focus on him and not us. This is a significant reality. How it ends up happening is just through Jesus. Romans 3 gives us some clarity to this. Romans 3, starting with verse 22, says, we are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. We are justified simply by humbly coming before him through Jesus. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. We're made right. And this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. Pharisee or tax collector, faithful or unfaithful, young or old. We are made right through Jesus. It's available to everyone, no matter who we are. Verse 23, for everyone has sinned. 
We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. Listen, God responds to pride and humility at the same speed. But we're made right through Jesus. We're made right when we believe, when we humbly come before, we confess and we say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So I want to position you to consider a question, to find the answer for you today, this week, sometime. What posture defines your approach? What posture defines your approach to God today? Are you someone who needs to actually finally acknowledge the sin in your life and ask for mercy? You need to change the posture and approach that way. Are you someone who needs to shift the focus of your prayers from talking about you and and declaring all the things about you to declaring the things about him and shifting your attention and your focus, your posture and your approach to him? What posture defines your approach today? The, The Pharisee thought he was not like any other person because he thought he was better than everybody else. The tax collector thought he wasn't like anybody else because he thought he was worse than everybody else. What defines your approach? Our posture matters. It determines our access. The the Pharisee saw prayer as a way to exalt himself, where the tax collector saw prayer as a way to humbly come before God and find mercy in his need. What's your approach and your posture? You know, I'll be really clear that shame is not humility. It's humiliation. Shame is not humility. It's a form of humiliation. And God never uses shame to draw his people back to him. Never. He uses conviction. Conviction and shame are not the same thing. Shame tears our value away from us. Shame positions us to be stuck in what has been, in what is, and there's no way forward because we have no value and we're worthless. Shame is not humility, it's humiliation, and God never uses it. He uses conviction, and conviction says, regardless of what has happened, even despite what happened, even though these things should have never happened, there is a way forward, there is more, you have more value, there is a way out. Conviction leads to more, shame leads to being stuck. And shame is not humility, shame is humiliation. Don't get stuck in that. In addition to that, self-loathing is not humility. It's not selflessness. Self-loathing is not humility. Someone once said that, 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 not, that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. We're not trying to devalue We're trying to understand real value, but not make it all about us. Humility is not thinking less of ourselves, but actually thinking of ourselves less. And in the dynamic between the Pharisee and the tax collector, that that Pharisee, he loathed the tax collector. And the tax collector could have embraced that concept. The Pharisee's praying out loud. It's highly likely he would have heard. The tax collector would have heard. He could have embraced what the guy was saying. He could have embraced a self-loathing perspective, but he didn't. He chose humility. And humility sees what is. It sees what actually is, the way things are. And the Pharisee, he saw himself as someone great when he wasn't. 
And the tax collector saw himself as a sinner in need of mercy and grace, which he was. And because he humbled himself, he was exalted. But when we exalt ourselves, we're humbled. What posture defines your approach today? Your approach to God? Your approach in your relationships? At home? At work? Is it about you? Or is it about others? Is it about God? Is it about your performance? Or is it about his mercy and grace? What posture defines your approach? You know, as we start to step further into the parables of Jesus, I want to invite you to approach those simple stories of spiritual truth, the word of God, with a posture willing to receive, willing to to hear whatever the Heavenly Father wants to say. He loves, he provides. Be willing to come before him humbly and receive what he has to say, what, what Jesus is trying to position you to choose to do. See, we all make mistakes. We get off on the wrong floor. We choose our pride over humility. (laughs) We all sin. But Jesus is our rescuer. God is our deliverer. He is the lifter of our head. No matter where we've been or what we've done. When we come before him in humility. In fact, in Psalm 3, we find these words. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Posture matters. Our God responds to pride and humility at the same speed. So what posture defines your approach today? Are you someone who lives over here, focused on yourself, trying to earn your value, comparing yourself to others, embracing a level of pride and ultimately trying to exalt yourself? Or are you here, willing to focus on God, seek his mercy and grace, confess honestly what is and isn't in your life, and humbly wait upon him? If you're willing to do that, he will exalt you. If you're hanging out here, he will humble you, and that's no fun. He loves you enough that he wants to grant favor. But you have to choose this side of the board. This is in his strength, not ours. But we get to choose. And how Jesus positions us to choose today out of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector is to choose the left or the right. I hope you choose the right. I hope you sit in a posture willing to approach in humility because that's where you find favor. If not, a holy, majestic, all-powerful God will oppose you, even though he doesn't want to, because he desires to show favor. What posture defines and determines your approach? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are a God who loves and loves enough to send Jesus, that through his life and death and resurrection, we can be reconciled and made right to you. We can be justified, not in our works, but in your grace and through your mercy. And I pray that there's anyone here today that needs to make that decision to receive Jesus as Savior and Lord and to be made right with you, that they would have the courage to do that because they hear you saying, 
and declaring your love for them. But if we, for those that have done that, Lord, I pray that you would help us to live on the left side of the board, to focus on you, to seek grace and mercy, to confess and, and maintain a posture of humility, one that is an orientation towards you, one that focuses not on ourselves, and that we resist the temptation to be on the other side, to, to, to try to prove something or to, or to focus on ourselves or, or to compare. God, help us to live in a way a posture that allows greater access, but then also allows you to work through us. So even in the next few moments, Jesus, I pray that you would show us areas that maybe are marked by pride in our life that you want to route out, and in areas that we need to step into a humility where you want to grant favor. May we do it with courage and boldness. But may you find us to be a people who make that choice in a way that allow you to grant favor and not have to stand in opposition. So in these next few moments as we sing, continue to speak and lead. We pray these things in the strong and mighty name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen.